0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed
1: i'm margaret brennan in washington and today on face the nation a sunday show exclusive the president of ukraine volodymyr Zelensky, joins us at a critical time in the six-week conflict this morning russian forces are pushed back from their assault on the capital city of kiev but will that retreat mean an escalation in other areas of ukraine where the death and destruction caused by the russians continues to overwhelm ukrainians struggling to escape We'll get insight from two key national security analysts, former Trump national security advisor, retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and Russia specialist Fiona Hill about the options facing Vladimir Putin and what, if anything, could end this conflict. Then, the House committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol continues to uncover new information from the days leading up to the attack. We'll talk with a key Democrat on that committee, Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. And with a number of violent crimes soaring across the country, we'll talk with New York City Mayor Eric Adams about efforts in America's biggest city to turn the surge around. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. As we come on the air, the Russian war strategy appears to have undergone a major shift. Two weeks ago, the Russians were focused on surrounding the capital city of Kyiv. Now they've upped their assault in the eastern and southern parts of the country. Just this morning, Russian missiles have struck an oil refinery in the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. And there are reports of new explosions in the Russian border town of Belhorod, site of two other Ukrainian strikes last week. It's been a horrific scene since day one, but the atrocities of war are escalating. We warn you, some of the images you are about to see are disturbing. We begin today with Holly Williams reporting from Dnipro, Ukraine.
2: Russian forces have pulled back from around Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and Ukraine says it's retaken more than 30 towns and villages. But what the Russian troops have left behind is sheer horror. In the town of Bucha, the streets are littered with bodies. Some, with their hands tied behind their back, appear to have been executed. Others are buried in a mass grave. More than 300 residents were killed, according to the mayor.
3: Vasily survived
2: it, but the trauma of what he witnessed is written on his face. He calls the Russian soldiers dogs and says he took cover in his cellar for two weeks. Ukrainian soldiers are removing the dead with caution, fearful they could be booby-trapped with explosives. Ukrainian officials say these images show the naked corpses of at least four women on a highway outside Kiev. They claim the Russians tried to burn the bodies. Despite the devastation, it seems Vladimir Putin's original battle plan has failed in the face of Ukraine's resistance. And Russian forces are shifting their attention to the east of this country. Hostomel Airport, just north of Kyiv, where Russian paratroopers landed on the first day of the invasion, is also back in Ukrainian hands. A visiting Ukrainian politician was upbeat.
4: We will rebuild our country. We will rebuild our dream. Our country will be beautiful, prosperous, and Russia will pay for everything they did.
2: But many parts of this country are still occupied. Ukraine says Russian forces opened fire yesterday on civilian protesters in the city of Ernegadar. And in the besieged city of Mariupol, bombarded for weeks by the Russians, around 100,000 people are thought to be trapped. Evacuation efforts are ongoing. The United Nations believes thousands may have died in Mariupol, but the true number can't be counted while the city is cut off and under Russian assault. A Ukrainian official said yesterday that a meeting between President Putin and Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky was likely to happen soon. But today, Russia's chief negotiator shot that idea down. Margaret.
1: Holly Williams, thank you. We go now to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. He joins us from Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. Good afternoon, sir. Good morning. Mr. President, Russian forces appear to be withdrawing from the north of Ukraine. Do you think this means Putin's calculus is changing?
4: Thank you for this question.
5: You know, Margaret,
4: we—they have pulled out from some localities. In others, they are redoing the redeployment because the complete the situation is difficult. There were some communities that they were trying to take several times and this is a tragedy because our army had to take back as well so the city of Chernobylka, nine times they attempted to take it over but we think this is the redeployment in our opinion they're changing the tactics now they were trying to take Kyiv and some cities in kiev region some of them have been occupied and then destroyed everything The civilians, the houses, they were stealing washing machines and equipment, so they were torturous as well, I think, the clips that we shared with you, you have seen for yourself. It's important for the free people of the United States to have a look at it and and see for themselves before the war when there was a lot of free time we were watching different films and also war movies but we couldn't have imagined anything like this because this is a maniac type of decision to dis- to destroy the whole nation well in in terms of the tax- tactics and them pulling out and what the strategy of the of putin is they are now focusing in the east of ukraine so this corridor which is going from the crimea to the east of ukraine this is in the south of ukraine and this is where they are trying to focus in terms of armament in terms of deploying the personnel the chechen troops occupying the cities they were bringing people from different parts of the world because they were in deficit of the personnel and now they are grouping all of these troops in the south and east of our country.
1: The images you're talking about have been described by leaders around the world as horrific. The mayor of Kyiv used the term genocide. Your vice prime minister is asking if this is fascism or genocide in terms of what has been left around Kyiv. Do you feel that the world will actually make good on this promise to hold Vladimir Putin to account for war crimes? everything
4: has to be fair and according to justice as the civilized world will decide we believe in justice in the justice of the western world of and therefore the question is not only about the leader of russian Federation, we wouldn't think that it would be fair to take only him. I think all the military commanders, everyone who gave instructions and orders, should be punished adequately. The adequate
6: punishment
4: to these people is difficult to be achieved. It has to be done according to the law and what they have done, and I want to apologize to you and to those people who are watching us now, but for some things that they have done, when we find people with, with uh, hands tied behind their back and decapitated, such things I don't understand, I don't comprehend the kids who were killed and tortured, so it wasn't enough just to kill for those criminals. Maybe they wanted to take gold or uh, washing machines and they were killing them, but they were also torturing them as they did this. And your question is absolutely fair, but I don't have the answer. I don't know what law or what imprisonment term would be adequate for this. As the father of two cho- children and as a president, I think that these people, if they are put behind the bars, this is one too little for what they have done.
1: Is this genocide?
4: Indeed, this is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation and the people. We are the citizens of Ukraine. We have more than 100 nationalities. This is about the destruction and extermination of all these nationalities. We are the citizens of Ukraine, and we don't want to be subdued to the policy of Russian Federation. And This is the reason we are being um, destroyed and exterminated, and this is happening in the Europe of the 21st century. So this is the torture of the whole nation.
1: In the Donbas southeast area of your country, the city of Mariupol, are you having any success getting civilians out?
4: Many people, many dozens of people have been evacuated. In certain cities, 35, 30, 40,000 have been evacuated. So, altogether, hundreds of thousands. But nevertheless, uh, there are still hundreds of thousands remain blocked. Some of them are blocked or behind the bars. To answer your question about Mariupol, before the beginning of this full-fledged war and the occupation of Mariupol. There have been lots of people and all the corridors have been blocked, including humanitarian corridors, the supply of food and water. So in this city now there is 150 thousand lots of dead bodies in the street lots of wounded people among military and civilians the evacuation happens only when the russian side agrees to ukrainian proposal to open a corridor so the corridor for the food or water simply do not exist in those cities that are occupied by RUSSIA.
1: MR. PRESIDENT, YOUR TEAM SHARED WITH US um, A VIDEO, IMAGES uh, THAT YOUR GOVERNMENT HAS GATHERED OF WHAT HAS BEEN LEFT BEHIND OUTSIDE OF KYIV THAT I DO WANT TO SHARE WITH OUR VIEWERS. AND I WANT TO ASK YOU ABOUT IT. LOOKING AND LISTENING TO WHAT VLADIMIR PUTIN HAS SAID, HE'S CALLED UKRAINE NOT A REAL COUNTRY, HE SAID IT'S CONTROLLED BY LITTLE NAZIS, HE'S CALLED YOU A DRUG ADDLED THUG. IS HE SOMEONE YOU CAN NEGOTIATE WITH?
4: As a president of Ukraine, there cannot be just my personal view about President Putin and a dialogue with the Russian Federation. I have to stand for the interests of my country, so it's difficult to say how, after all, what has been done we can have any kind of negotiations with Russia that's on the personal level but as a president I have to do it any war has to end just end I'm not talking about ending this with peace because peace in this situation when there are thousands of people killed is something that I'm not fine with. But there is no any other way, this I'm saying as a president, there's no any other way but the dialogue. It, if we don't want hundreds of thousands, millions to die. But it's important to have the agreement between the two sides and understanding, or at least the desire to understand that we need to have a dialogue because we're going to stand until the end, and they have to understand this. So I keep talking about this dialogue, something that I have been repeating throughout my term as a president.
1: In terms of security guarantees, the United States has given security assurances to Ukraine in the past, and that did not stop this invasion. When you recently spoke with President Biden, did he make you any kind of concrete promise that the U.S. and NATO wouldn't let this happen to Ukraine again?
5: So
4: we don't believe in papers any longer. So we are very grateful for the support of the United States, indeed. And it's a very powerful support. But in terms of security guarantees, we have not received them yet from anyone. And we have to get them. For us, it is important also what the circle of countries who will be providing the security guarantees is going to be and how specifically this will be enforced. So I'm not, as a president, satisfied with just assurance, because then I don't know what the agreement is going to be about and whether we will have any agreement with Russia. What are we going to agree about? Who are going to be the guarantors? Because if tomorrow the war starts again and only sanctions will be introduced, well, that's about nothing because sanctions are important. If they cannot stop the aggression, then we don't need such guarantees.
1: Russia seems very interested in this resource rich part of eastern Ukraine. I wonder will you settle for anything less than a full withdrawal of Russian troops from every inch of Ukrainian soil?
4: This is the bare minimum that we have to start the deoccupation with. It should be 100% withdrawal of troops
2: to their
4: borders that existed prior to the 24th of. February at least. This would make us to to start discussing other questions about the deoccupation, about how do we live on after this, how we have our dialogue with them. So, I can't even have a meeting when the shelling is going on. So, First, the ceasefire, then we can have a meeting with the Russian president. If they have the an approach that they is making these authoritarian decisions, why do we need this bloodshed drama performance for? Let's simply sit down together, the two of us,
1: You can watch the full interview on our website, facethenation.com. We'll be back in one minute. Stay with us. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be
2: surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
1: That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We turn now to former National Security Council Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs, Fiona Hill. She's also the author of There Is Nothing For You Here. Glad to have you back with us. Thanks, Margaret. Uh, It was extraordinary to have this conversation with President Zelensky, particularly at this moment as these images emerge of what has happened, the devastation in and around Kyiv. He's talking about looting, the reports of mass rape, mass graves.
7: Is this how the Russian military always behaves? Well, this is clearly not a special military operation, is it, when we see all of these images? And unfortunately, it's following a pattern that goes back um, historically. I mean, look, a lot of this wasn't talked about so much after World War II. But when the Red Army uh, moved into Berlin, there was mass rape. of uh, of German women in the city and obviously in the wake of World War Two people didn't really want to talk about that so much given all the atrocities that were committed by German forces and the Nazis Uh, We've got um, these uh, reports of of looting in other um, settings as well, in Chechnya, also in Georgia. Uh, When uh, the Russian military moved in in 2008, there was a lot of uh, wanton destruction of uh, Georgian um, equipment, uh, reports of, like, deliberate defecation on the equipment, you know, for example. I mean, almost, like, stupid stuff that was basically meant to show unbelievable disrespect. But, look, we see in many wartime scenarios, all the way through history, these kinds of reports. But if there was genuinely a special military operation to liberate a fraternal country from, you know, what uh, Putin was describing as Nazis, you would not expect this kind of conduct. So either this is a complete breakdown of command and control or it's actually being sanctioned in some way to teach the Ukrainians a lesson. Either way, this is actually pretty disastrous and obviously requires some kind of serious response in the international community.
1: You know... The United States expected Russia to launch an entire electronic warfare blackout in Ukraine when they did this. They haven't. And in fact, one of President Zelensky's most powerful tools is his ability to continue to communicate in the middle of this and to show these images to the world. Was this a big strategic
7: failure by Vladimir Putin? I mean, why is he allowing... Well, it's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, is it because they actually proved not to have the capacity? Is it that the Ukrainians are pushing back because there's a lot of very technically savvy Ukrainians, a lot of companies? There's obviously a lot of assistance that they're getting from the outside world. And we've heard, um, you know, assistance from Elon Musk, for example, a lot of it's coming from individuals, not just from um, governments. But there's been a lot of strategic blunders by uh, the Russian um, government uh, in this campaign. Clearly, there's lots of things that uh, they didn't expect. First of all, that the campaign has gone on much longer. Second, they haven't been able to decapitate uh, the Ukrainian government. They haven't taken Kiev. We've seen instead that they've just basically uh, wreaked havoc and carnage all over the place. So they're engaging in acts uh, not just of what appear to be war crimes, which we're now in the process of um, documenting, but of wanton destruction and, um, you know, this this crazy looting that you're seeing taking place. I mean, this is really, I think, raising a lot of questions questions about this much vaunted Russian military uh, that we had all actually expected to uh, perform in a much better fashion across the board. And um, clearly, if the information has not been filtering up to Vladimir Putin, as we've been hearing uh, from his commanders, uh, this must be something of a shock to the system for him as well, which actually then uh, raises a lot of questions about what is he going to do next? Why
1: is Vladimir Putin so concerned with the Donbass region, the eastern region?
7: Well, this is the place that he first got a grip on in 2014 after annexing Crimea. I mean, we know that in 2014 that the Russian government, Putin in particular, had bigger ambitions. He talked about this region of Novorossiya, which extends from the Donbass region all the way through all of these port cities on the Sea of Azov that we've uh, seen completely devastated. Militopol, Mariupol, Berdyansk, for example to Kherson, another of the cities that they've seized, and then all the way down to Odessa, where we're getting reports now that they're fighting, uh, or rather starting to shell Odessa and raising the question of fighting. This is a whole area that was uh, seized by the Russian Empire uh, under Catherine the Great. Putin's talked about it repeatedly, and for him, this zone now of southern Ukraine along the Black Sea, Mm -hmm. uh, across uh, the top of the Crimean Peninsula, the Sea of Azov, extending to Donbass, seems to be the area that he's wanting to make sure that he has a hold of no matter what
1: I want to put up a map here because you know we keep hearing that much of the world is picking a side in this conflict against Russia but actually it's really just Europe it's the Americas Um, it's the West Japan is the world actually really lining up against him or does he have quite a lifeline still
7: Well, he does still have a lifeline. This is what's really problematic. I mean, the one thing that we have to be very careful about now, I mean, I know that President Zelensky um, is really making a massive appeal for more help from the United States, from the West, from NATO and from other um, allies, European Union. But we really need to get other international actors Mm -hmm. to step up. Um, We've had Japan and South Korea, for example. There's been um, uh, protestations about the conflict in the United Nations General Assembly from countries like Ghana and Kenya. But there needs to be more because Russia wants to portray this as a proxy war between the United States and Russia for Ukraine. That is not what this is.
1: You know, Fiona, this is really these two personalities, Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin. And it's all about trying to change Putin's mind. At this point, Is there any succession plan if he is no longer running Russia?
7: Well, there's always a succession plan, at least in theory, which is, you know, if something happens to him um, normally, uh, then either the prime minister or the speaker of the Russian parliament would step in and they would have elections. Now, under this current circumstance, there is just absolutely no way that Vladimir Putin wants to um, loosen his grip on power. 2024, he's supposed to have a presidential election. In theory, as we know, he's got two more presidential terms that he can contest, uh, and that would take him out till 2036. And Putin has, if anything, some staying power. He's pretty much determined to stay in place, and there is absolutely no way that he would want to go out on the back, in any way, on the back of a a disaster uh, in Ukraine.
1: So this is in some ways solidifying his hold on power rather than weakening it?
7: Absolutely, from his perspective. Now, it doesn't mean to say, of course, that that hold is um, fully consolidated. It's very brittle, the situation right now. So many things can go wrong. So many things could be happening behind the scenes that we actually don't know about. But for Putin himself. The absolute last thing he wants to do is go out on the backdrop of protests, backdrop of a failed war, as other previous uh, leaders in Russian history have. And there's no way that he's going to entertain any kind of idea of a palace coup. He knows the history. He knows how these things work. And the immediate group of people around him who helped plot this war are also going to rise and fall with him. So you can be sure that they're trying to root out any kind of dissent, any kind of opposition at this moment and also on the popular level. I mean, we're hearing in public opinion polls that there's a lot of support for Putin. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to, you know, kind of really gauge again how deep that support is. People are rallying around the flag, rallying around him, rallying around the Kremlin. And he's going to make sure, of course, that any kind of uh, alternate views are completely and utterly suppressed at this moment.
1: You've written extensively about Putin. I know President Biden has read your book on him. One of the things you write about is... What's happened in the past with ceasefire agreements in Chechnya? And that's why I asked about security guarantees with President Zelensky. In the past, Russia has torn up peace agreements, just reinvaded. Is that what Vladimir Zelensky is looking at now? The yes. risk of that?
7: I mean, he has to be very serious about this. And as he said, um, they're fed up now on the Ukrainian side with paper agreements. They have to have something real and concrete. And that's going to be what's going to be difficult. Because it can't just be from the United States either. The previous agreement, the Budapest um, agreement, was with the United States, the United Kingdom and Russia. And obviously that was in 1994 when Ukraine gave up its strategic nuclear weapons. That became pretty meaningless. And so what uh, Zelensky is looking for, obviously, as he said, is some pretty concrete guarantees from a range of countries. He talked there about... The, um, the circle of countries that might be involved. And it has to be outside of Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part of the problem. Right. As Putin is making this a proxy war, he's saying to everyone else, this is like the Cold War, this is like Korea or Vietnam, this is not the case. Putin has decided to invade a neighbouring country. It's a Mm -hmm. post-imperial land grab. It's based on history, his uh, grievances, his view of Russia's place in Europe. And basically, it has to be addressed in an international context. So they need wide-ranging international security guarantees.
1: It is... A global problem now. Fiona Hill, thank you for your analysis. I want to get more from former national security advisor H.R. McMaster. He's also CBS News foreign policy national security contributor and host of the podcast Battlegrounds. Good morning to you, H.R. Tactically and strategically speaking, why would Russian forces move to the east?
3: Well, to, tr- to try to get something out of this, right, and to try to to try to compensate for the utter failure of the the, the offensive initially, it's quite clear that that Russia has failed from the very beginning uh, in, in connection with its original objectives to subjugate all of Ukraine and to effect this coup domain oriented uh, on these four axes, but mainly on Kiev and and Odessa, and what you see is a concentration now in the Donbas region and in the south. It's interesting, Margaret. We haven't heard too much talk about this, but this is about 10 percent of the Ukrainian landmass, but about the landmass that holds about 90 percent of, of Ukraine's energy resources. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see Russia as having a strategic design in mind is, as, as, uh, as, as, as Fiona mentioned, right? this is about Nova R- Russia and so forth, but it's also making the Sea of Azov clearly a Russian right. lake and the black the Black Sea as well.
1: Well, I thought it was interesting what President Zelensky said when I asked him, does this mean, you know, 100 percent withdrawal from all of Ukrainian territory? Um, and he said Russia needs to withdraw to the borders pre-February 24th. So that would mean potentially those eastern Donetsk and Luhansk areas um, and Crimea. Is that significant to you the way he phrased that?
3: It, it is significant. It means that, that, you know, he's willing to compromise to a certain extent, but I think that's got to be up to him and the Ukrainian people. You've seen the horrors, the devastation. The, I, I've heard your conversation, which, which is just, it was just terrible uh, with, uh, with Zelensky and, and, and the horrors that they're confronting now in, in the wake of the, of the Russian withdrawal. You know, I, I think that it's going to be up to the Ukrainian people, obviously, if they're willing to compromise at all after that. It, and it's hard to, to imagine that, that they will want to, to give up any of their territory.
1: Yeah,
3: well, and and of course, Margaret. Hey, I think the other point about this is, you know, of course, Zelensky knows that wouldn't be the end, right? If 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 uh, if, if Vladimir Putin says, oh, "I'll you know, I'll return right. back to the pre-February uh, borders," uh, of course, what he'll do is try to keep Ukraine under his, th- his thumb and under uh, continuous duress, just as he has since at least two thousand and three, and especially after two thousand and fourteen.
1: Yeah, and it's exactly what you just put your finger on there that has the surrounding European countries so concerned that he could continue to destabilize the area. Um, but, But I want to ask you about that. Why would Putin risk bringing a NATO country into a war that is being described as one where his military is failing? Is the U.S. and Europe making him 10 feet tall when he's not?
3: Yes, I think so. I think I think uh, I think Putin is really on the ropes here, and of course, the, all, what does he have left? Mario, only, he only has left are threats, cyber threats. Well, that's not working out for some reason. I think we'll, we'll learn more about that later. But then all, the only thing he can do is, is rattle his nuclear saber, which is what he's done. And of course, that's a cause for concern. But I think we have to, to not forget the don't part of don't take counsel of our fears. And I think at this stage, what we're seeing, when we confront the, the horrors and the mass murder that, is, that occur, has occurred and the horrible abuses, I think we feel now compelled to do more. Well, I think what we shouldn't do is wait any longer to do Mm -hmm. what it takes to give Ukraine all the tools necessary to fully beat back this offensive and to make it clear to the Russians that they're going to be unable to renew an offensive in the future.
1: Just to be really clear with our viewers, um, since you you served in the military for so long, what we are describing and what is being documented as having happened outside Kyiv is very far beyond the acceptable code of conduct for US military forces. Can you just put that in context for anyone who would say war is always bloody? How do you see what happened?
3: Well, this this is that's this is, this, this is a, an unprofessional force. This is a force that is not adhering to the basic military ethic or the or the, the law of war or 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 the, or, the, or just war theory. Juice in BELLO theory requires you to apply force with discipline and discrimination and and uh, and to protect non-combatants. Of course, Russia actually it's, its tactic was to commit mass murder against noncombatants because it didn't have the military competence to accomplish its objectives uh through fire and maneuver and the defeat of uh, of the, of the opposing uh, military force and then the, the then the uh, control of that territory so this is this is against the law of war it's a, it's against uh it's against the military ethic and it's against what we have in our armed forces the the you know the professional uh, warrior ethos, which is based on principles such as honor and self-sacrifice. And, and that also includes taking on more risk ourselves to protect innocence, even, uh, even in, a, in an activity that involves killing and, and the prospect of death.
1: H.R. McMaster, thank you for your analysis today. We'll be right back.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
1: Last week, CBS News and the Washington Post revealed that internal White House phone records from January the 6th showed a seven hour gap in President Trump's call logs during the violence at the Capitol that day. Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin is on the House committee investigating the attack on the Capitol and joins us here now. Uh, welcome. Thank you for face having me. The nation. This seven hour gap. Um, You have subpoenaed the the former president's assistant, Molly Michael. I know you've been trying to figure out from staff what happened. Do you have any insight?
6: Well, it's a very unusual thing for us to find that suddenly everything goes dark for a seven-hour period in terms of uh, tracking the movements and the conversations of the president. Um, And um, some things we've been able to piece together from other people's interviews and depositions that we know took place during that time. We are aware of other phone calls that took place um, during that time that included uh, the president. But we have no uh, comprehensive, fine-grained portrait of what was going on during that period. And that's obviously of Um, intense interest to us. Mm -hmm.
1: You still don't have that after debriefing some of these assistants. I mean, his office, the former president's office was known for being sloppy. Um, He used cell phones. She wasn't, the personal assistant wasn't in the office that day. Is there a chance here that this was just sort of large-scale incompetence rather than conspiracy?
6: Well, we're taking that possibility into account. Um, It does seem like the, the gaps are suspiciously tailored to Uh, the heart of the events, Um, but we're checking that out. And, you know, our mandate under H.R. 503 is to get a complete picture of everything that took place on January 6th, the causes leading up to it, and then what we need to do as a country to fortify democratic institutions and processes against future insurrections and coups and attempts to destabilize and overthrow our elections.
1: I mean, it's just an incredible phrase, potential future coups. Um,
6: uh, It's
1: breathtaking to hear you say it that uh, way.
6: Congressman Mo Brooks said um, just a week or two ago that um, President, former President Trump continues to try to get him and other Republicans to rescind the election. In other words, he continues to look for a way to nullify an election that he considers fraudulent. Uh, Last night, you know, I was at the Gridiron Club dinner and I saw Uh, the governor, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, who um, I thought um, was a huge breath of fresh air. He said uh, publicly, he broke tradition apparently in the Gridiron Club, he said Donald Trump is effing crazy. And he didn't say effing, Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't want to make any history on your show. Um, But he also seemed to announce that he was going to run for president in 2024, mm-hmm. uh, laying down the gauntlet essentially against the Trump-Putin axis within the Republican Party.
1: Mm-hmm. So Your Sorry. earpiece just popped out I say, there. Yeah. <laughs> but Even you though I didn't me. say the word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you can hear me. Um, I mean, are, are you concerned that at the end of this investigation, you're not going to find what it sounds like you're looking for, which is substantiation of a, of a link between a pressure campaign to change the election results? And the events of January 6th itself. I mean, Are you confident you'll get that and you will be able to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department? Well,
6: no, I think you've put your finger on it. I mean, we know there were two things going on. And one was a violent insurrection that included a mob riot, which injured 150 of our officers with broken jaws and broken necks and broken vertebrae and so on. And then um, that was led by domestic violent extremist groups like the Proud Boys, who... uh, you know, then-President Trump had told to stand back and stand by, the Oath Keepers, Mm -hmm. the Three Percenters, people who've been charged with seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government, they shut down the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in American history. Didn't even happen when Lincoln uh, took, uh, Mm -hmm. took the presidency in 1861. Okay, so there was that violent insurrection, but then there was an attempt at an inside coup. What the political scientists call a self-coup. Not a coup against a president, but a coup that's orchestrated by the president against the constitutional system. Mm -hmm. And what we're looking for is the connections between the inside political coup and the violent insurrection. And I do feel confident we're going to be able to tell that story.
1: But tell that story is different in the political context from making a criminal recommendation or a legal proceeding at the Justice Department. Are you confident that will
6: happen? Well, uh, we will lay out the evidence that we see. Now, understand, the role of the January 6th Select Committee is to deliver a report to the American people and to the Congress. And so individual criminal accountability is something that comes within the domain of the Department of Justice. That's why I wanted
1: to make that clear. Yeah,
6: and one of the traditions we want to rebuild that was torn down during the last administration was um, of not having members of Congress and the president trying to dictate policy to the Department of Justice, well, and that's what the last president did, and I'm glad this president's not doing it, and we don't want to be part of that.
1: How long is too long? Because we keep hearing that the public hearings are getting pushed off. Is it May? Is it June? When do you cut this I off? Think we're.
6: I think that the hearing should be in early May. That's what I'm hoping for. Uh, obviously, we're up against a lot of obstruction. Now, this week... Mm-hmm. Um, We voted to bring contempt citations against uh, Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro, the social media guy for him. And Peter Navarro was the the trade advisor who, for some reason, was off involving himself in insurrectionary coup-plotting activities. Those guys are claiming executive privilege, which is absurd.
1: And that vote is going to be happening this week. We hope so, yes. We will be back with more Face the Nation in a moment.
5: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: We turn now to the stunning increase in violent crime, and fighting that increase is one of the top priorities for New York City's new mayor, Eric Adams. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Good to have you in studio.
8: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: New York City has, what, the highest number of shootings in a decade, more than 40% spike in homicides over the last two years. You've Some of the toughest gun laws in the country. Where are all these weapons coming from?
8: Uh, That's a great question in in my conversation with the president and the chief of staff yesterday. We talked about just the flow of guns to uh, our inner cities. Uh, A few days ago, I was in Chicago with Mayor Lightfoot, who took um, several uh, thousands of guns off a street last year. And here in New York, we're doing the same. We really have to have a combination. We have to stop the flow of guns. But we must also do the job of getting the guns off the streets that's on there now. And my anti-gun unit, they're doing that. Just uh, a few weeks out, uh, they removed over 20-something guns off the street. But here's the interesting number. 70% of those who were carrying the guns had prior uh, violent offenses. So we need to combine with that small number of people who are carrying guns with the large number of guns on our street and get both off our street. But
1: you know that uh acknowledging that and having some of the toughest gun laws in the country will have critics say, well look, it makes no difference if you have tight gun laws.
8: Well, I tell those critics, go visit that 13-year-old boy that was shot yesterday while sitting in the back of the car. We need to stop criticizing good, proper law enforcement with the proper proactive things to keep guns out of the hands of young people. and That's the combination that we're going to do.
1: So why aren't the laws working?
8: For a number of reasons. Uh, We have a small number of gun dealers that are just skating the law. We're dealing with a problem with ghost guns. It's, it's imperative that we come up with clear messages around ghost guns and the kits that assemble them. And I believe Washington is going to do that. Then we need to put money into the ATF so they can do the proper information sharing, so we can identify the flow of guns in the inner cities. And that is what we're doing in New York with our combined efforts of all law enforcement agencies.
1: It sounds like you're expecting more executive actions or orders from the president to do this, because none of it's going to get through Congress.
8: Well, it's a combination. I think um, executive orders are crucial. But while we're waiting for uh, the president and the White House to continue to do the good things they're doing, I have to do the things we must do on the ground in New York City, and that's what we're doing. Uh, My officers are stepping up with quality of life issues, and we're zeroing in on dangerous gangs and zeroing in on those who are trigger pullers and carrying guns.
1: I want to ask you about that. You called it quality of life. It's quality of life enforcement. Um, You yourself have been quite critical of past mayors when they have used tactics known as, like, broken windows, right, going after these sort of smaller-scale crimes. Quality of life includes offenses that are precursors to violence, marijuana sales, public urination, things like that. Aren't these the same zero-tolerance policies that in the past have been exploited and caused civil rights violations?
8: Oh, And I'm glad that you, you, know, you pointed out the history, because this is my history of fighting against heavy-handed and abusive policing. You can have the justice that we deserve with the safety we need. Here's what we talk about when we say quality of life. Not allowing someone to go into a store, steal what they want, and then walk out. Jumping the turnstiles, not paying your fare in in the subway system. Many of the criminal element, they are actually going into the subway system without paying their fare and committing crimes. We learned that during the uh, uh, mid-'90s and early-'90s. But also looking at just open drug use, injecting yourself with heroin in our parks in front of our children, Mm -hmm. Uh, loud noise, just being disorderly. Uh, Some of the things we're doing around encampment. You don't have to use police uh, to... Uh, remove the encampments in our city like we're doing. We're doing a combination of social services, giving people the dignity they deserve. That is what we talk about, cleaning our streets and making sure that we don't have a state of disorder.
1: But all of what you're laying out, no one's for those things, but Mm -hmm. they're concerned that this is just dressing back up the broken windows theory, that you're doing the same things but relabeling it.
8: Well, I think that is important for people to say, well, let's look at who's implementing the proper use of dealing with quality of life. Eric Adams, I was the leading voice uh, that uh, testified in federal court about the overuse of police tactics. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm in charge of that police department, and I know how we can run a police department with a great police commissioner, and commissioner soon where we're going to make sure we don't have disorder in our city, where we're going to lawfully show people that this is a city where the quality of life is, is important.
1: But you have said things like you won't tolerate bystanders being on top of police officers to film their activity. Isn't the public reporting, eyewitness accounts like this, exactly what has stopped or at least laid bare violations such as the killing of George Floyd? Isn't that kind of public reporting important?
8: Right. And let me tell you what I've done throughout my years. I've, I've done something called what to do with stop by the police, how to film police, how to do it properly nothing is more dangerous than if a police officer is fighting with someone that has a gun and you have a person standing over him taping that interaction that is extremely dangerous that officer is not aware of who's behind him many days that i fought with individuals who were carrying weapons or knives and i've had people stand over me with a camera that is extremely dangerous because you don't know what you have so what we're saying to new york is film eric gardner case The young man filmed a safe Mm -hmm. distance away. He did not interrupt or interfere. That is how you film. You don't do it that endangers yourself or that police officer who's taking action.
1: Mr. Mayor, thank you for your time today. Thank
8: you. Good seeing you.
1: We'll be right back. Today, we say a fond farewell to Greg Scooter Schaefer, who is retiring from CBS News after almost 40 years. Scooter spent just about all of those Sundays in the audio booth here in the Washington Bureau, making sure you could hear us and our guests loud and clear. When Scooter arrived at CBS, George Herman was the host of Face the Nation, and he's worked with every moderator since, including myself, Bob Schieffer, Leslie Stahl, and John Dickerson. Thank you, Scooter, for decades and well over 1,500 Sundays of your dedication. We wish you all the best in your retirement, and we will always your family. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, former National Security Council Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs Fiona Hill, former National Security Advisor to President Trump and retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, and New York City Democratic Mayor Eric Adams. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we are online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan,